Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 21 of the Laity Podcast. Before we dive into content, wanted to say thank you so much for the support. This is actually our last episode in our series on the kingdom, and uh, it's been really exciting. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. Um, The discussions have been super insightful, and frankly, we're learning so much on this journey um, that's just edifying our walk individually, uh, Stephen and I, that is, and hopefully it's it's also adding to your spiritual journey as well. Um, Wanted to also quickly say thank you so much for donating. Uh, Each of you who have made a monetary contribution through our GoFundMe page, um, you may recall we were looking to raise $500 and we were able to do so and actually exceed that goal. Um, In particular, thank you um, to to those who gave in in much higher amounts. In fact, one particular couple supported half of that effort, and and that really means a lot. Um, Thank you so much for not only contributing monetarily, but just the ongoing support for those who have reached out to us via email, via Twitter, uh, it means a lot to know you're, you're diving into this content right along with us. Uh, but without any further ado, enjoy this episode with Brian. everyone. Welcome to the Laity Podcast. Welcome back. And if it's your first time tuning in, great to have you. And uh, we're all in for a treat here. We have uh, our, our friend Brian Zond here joining us from Missouri. Brian, how's it going? It's going good. Good to be back. Seems like I was just with you. That's, Maybe I was. I can't remember. That's how <laughs> we feel. You've you've been yeah. like uh, all over the place geographically since, since we had you on last. Uh, we won't rehash what we just talked about, but recently back from the, the the Camino, although the the shorter version in Portugal, correct? Yeah, start in Porto, Portugal, and you end up in Spain. So one one week in Portugal, one week in Spain, basically to walk 160 miles. And, and last year, I think you said you did that 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 longer Camino in Spain, and that you're probably right. doing it again next year. Without getting into all the details of what the Camino is, I mean, give us some insight and kind of what what drives you to do to do that kind of thing. What, why well, you mentioned it being refreshing? Like what, what, what do you get out of that? I just haven't found anything that is as good for my soul to take a break and where I don't have anything to do, but to live a minimal existence to walk 12 to 15 miles a day. I mean, what do I wear? I wear what I'm not wearing. I mean, I, I mean, you, you, you wear one pair of clothes and another pair is in your pack and, and you just, what do you take with you on the Camino? It's like that album by you two, all that you can't leave behind. Yeah. And find out that you really can go through life with about 19 pounds of stuff and that's all you need. And so to have those long protracted times of just walking, praying, following in the footsteps of believers that have walked this path for 12 centuries, um, stopping in churches numerous times a day to meditate upon a crucifix. All of that is very good for my soul. And so I think I found it at about the right time in my life. I mean, I don't think it was was something that I needed to be doing in my 20s, 30s, 40s, but then I started in my late 50s, and now I'm going to be 60 next year. And so 
I'm going to walk it again. 500 Lord will. How long does it take you when you're doing that? How long does it take you to just to, to kind of reach your cruising altitude? You know what I mean? Like, like how long does it take you to detox? And what is that process like? A couple of weeks. I mean, the point with, with what I just did about the time this one was over was about the time I was at cruising altitude. Yeah. So it take you know a couple of weeks. I mean that's that's what Americans think of as a relatively lengthy vacation, right? Mm-hmm. I mean Americans are that way. Uh, it takes after about two weeks, then you kind of settle in and you realize, okay, this is what my life is for this period of time, and life becomes much more simple. And I think I find that my my I don't know. My soul is expanded. It's open to new things, to uh, to very quiet impressions that that would be muted by all of the exterior noise that is part of my regular life. Mm. So, yeah, I, I think it's. I mean, I'm just sensitive to the fact that not everybody can do what I do. But again, this is a stage of life thing, and so I, I don't want people out there to think, well, you know, great. For him, you know, he can just, you know, run off to Spain and walk for six weeks. Not everybody can do that. I get that. And I went through decades of my life where I couldn't do that. But now I can, and it's good for me, so that's what I'm going to do. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. awesome. I, I also saw you spoke, and we didn't talk about this earlier. You you were recently at a at Reunion, which I think yeah, is United, the, United yeah, Pursuits. Uh, Friday, with, Saturday, yeah. Yeah, how was that? I've never been, always wanted to go. No, that was one of the most receptive groups of people that I've ever spoken to. I spoke twice and, um, I was very encouraged by it. I would describe the crowd. I don't like the word crowd, but you know, those that were attending this festival, probably most of them come from some version. I'm I'm guessing of some kind of charismatic background. Um, but the speakers were a lot of my friends, Jonathan Martin, Jason Upton, he, more of a musician, one of my really close friends. He was there. Carlos Rodriguez. Uh, I can't remember who all was there, but I mean, just a lot of the people that I know. William Matthews, he was there. And so it was good to see this group of relatively young people with a lot of energy uh, open to what I would call a more substantive and perhaps a little bit even subversive message than they're probably used to, but they were very welcoming to it. And I found them very easy to speak to. I, I just had a wonderful time. I have a question on that. So how do you, like, how do you perceive that you're being received so well? Like you're not talking to, maybe you are, to dozens of these kids. Is it just the the questions well, that are being asked? No, is the attitude? I mean, you talk to them afterwards, but uh, no, I mean, if you do this as long as I've done it, you can, you feel right. an audience. You can tell if they're skeptical, if some are coming, or if they're really with you. I don't know how to say that. You just you just know that. I mean, it's just it's just years and years of experience of sort of in mass taking in facial expressions, and you know, you just you you become sensitive to that. I think most uh, public speakers that have done this for a long time know how to gauge whether or not the audience is with you. And I could, they were very supportive, easy to speak to, open to new ideas. Again, I found it very hopeful. 
That's awesome. Yeah, we love we love those guys, man. So I don't know the United Pursuit guys personally, but I also lead worship. I, and- I know them. I mean, we talked a little bit a time or two just setting this up, but then I got there and I met Nathan Frey and some of the other guys. Just wonderful yeah. people. Yeah, just they're great. Can't say good about them. What they've been yeah. doing in uh, in Knoxville, like very much under the radar, but really mm-hmm. just impactful. Like weekly times of worship. It's just it's really impacted my faith a lot, yeah. and a lot of the folks I was in community with in, in college. Um, but, but anyway, want to, uh, thanks for all that. And again, thanks for coming back on. Want to steer a little bit here, kind of closer to, to, to some, something specific we want to talk about. So as our listeners know, we've been doing this series on the kingdom that is kind of coming to, uh, coming to the end or the end times, one of the two in this conversation. Uh, and, uh, we wanted, I, I had a couple specific questions for you, um, wanted to tee up this conversation around salvation, um, which is an incredibly loaded um, religious yeah. word, but probably helpful. Um, and then this idea of eschatology, which we'll, we'll get into in the second half of this. Um, t- we've had a lot of folks talk about the kingdom. I think last time you came on, you even gave some insight into the kingdom as we talked about Nicodemus in John 3 um, and his questions there. But, but yeah. this idea of salvation, so a lot yeah. of... For for a lot of us, when we think about salvation, it very much has everything to do with a personal forgiveness of sins, highly yeah. transactional sort of narrative and around. Say yeah. that again, Brian. And individualistic, and, and very transactional and individualistic. Now, and I'll let you kind of go mortem. Yes, yes, and all. Yes, exactly. And I'll have you go off on that. But what's interesting is. When I think about the kingdom, which I think most folks can get behind this idea of there's this kingdom of God and it's where, you know, God's rule and reign, you know, on earth as in heaven and, and right. you know, there, these kind of the Luke 4 type things happening as, as Jesus talks about, like that all sounds amazing. The justice, the, you know, the, the, the enslaved being set free and the blind seeing and those are all amazing images, but it's like, that's great. But that has nothing to do with my personal salvation, or does it? And there can be a sort of disjointedness there. So I want to just give you the floor to intro us into kind of how you understand kingdom of God and then salvation kind of set the foundation for us in that context. I've done a lot of thinking about this very question that you're asking me. In fact, an enormous amount, a little bit of writing, a little bit of preaching, an enormous amount of thinking. Um, for a long time, not so much these days because things have sort of changed in my life, but for a very long time, I called Mondays my thinking day. And I would give basically all of Monday to prayer, scripture reading, reading some books, and then large chunks of times of sitting and thinking. And for about an entire year, I think it was the year 2006, my my topic on my thinking day was, what is salvation? And I worked on that, and I would do it in different ways. Of, of course, I was reading, but I was also imagining conversations with the Apostle Paul or things like this. I would do these imaginary conversations. Uh, I had dreams as a result of that, of having conversations with Paul on what is salvation. Here's the conclusion I came to, and I I feel very good about this. I'll stand by this. If the question is, what is salvation? My answer is the kingdom of God. I think I can conclusively show that in Scripture. 
What is salvation? Salvation is the kingdom of God. Our own personal experience of salvation is our experience of the kingdom of God, or vice versa. Maybe I would say it the other way. Our own personal experience of the kingdom of God is our experience of what we call salvation. Now, here's what's interesting. The only thing Jesus ever talked about was the kingdom of God. In fact, I can make a case that Jesus, the only thing he ever did was to announce or enact the kingdom of God. That's it in its totality. Uh, And consequently, Jesus doesn't use the word salvation very often. In fact, that noun he only uses twice. He does refer to, he does use saved now and then, um, or save, verb form. Uh, but not often. He talks about the kingdom of God. On the other hand, the Apostle Paul talks about salvation a lot and rarely mentions the kingdom of God, only a few times. Here's the thing. What Jesus tends to call the kingdom of God, the Apostle Paul tends to call salvation, but they're not talking about different things. They're talking about the same thing. Uh, What we need is this broad expansive, um, alternative way of being human, both personally and corporately, that Jesus calls the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the rule of God, the politics of God, the government of God. See, the problem with kingdom of God, the the problem is that kingdom is an archaic term. We don't use that in normal conversation. The, man, the moment I speak of, let me tell you of a kingdom, and you're thinking, oh, yeah, fairy tales and knights in shining armor and right. things right. like that. It's an archaic term. But if I say, let's talk about government, well, of course, you may say, let's not. <laughs> but, or, or, but but you, you know that it's going to be pertinent. It's going to be edgy. It's going to be serious. And then what if I say, let's talk about the government of God. This is what Jesus is announcing. Now, part of a person's um, belonging—I think salvation is best understood as a kind of belonging. We come to belong to this alternative society that Jesus calls the kingdom of God. And part of the benefit of that is as you come into this alternative society, one of the things that happens is your sins are forgiven you. I mean, how marvelous is that? Uh, we come in, we're humbling ourselves, we're repenting, which means to rethink. We're rethinking everything. We're confessing that Jesus is Lord. We want to be a part of the alternative society that he reigns and rules over. And part of what happens in that movement of faith is that our sins are forgiven us. But personal forgiveness of sins is not by any means the whole or totality of the kingdom of God. It's simply one aspect. It's how God deals with our sins. He forgives them and then invites us to be a part of this other kind of way of being human. Now, because salvation is best understood as a kind of belonging, this creates the great theological problem of the very first generation of Christians. And that is, how do you justify Gentiles as Gentiles belonging to the kingdom of Messiah? Uh, This becomes a problem. Now, Peter initiates the idea that Gentiles, as Gentiles, can belong to the alternative 
kingdom of Messiah, when he proclaims the gospel at the home of Cornelius and baptizes them. But in defending his actions, because he does have to defend them, because the circumcision party and the Jerusalem church are upset about this, he can only appeal to a mystical experience. He says, look, I was in Joppa. I was praying. I had this crazy vision. The voice said, don't call things unclean anymore that God has made clean. There's a knock at the door. It's a bunch of Gentiles. They said they saw an angel. I'm supposed to go talk to these people. I go talk to them. I talk about Jesus, and there's a repetition of the day of Pentecost. What am I supposed to do? I baptized him. Uh, the task of actually justifying how Gentiles as Gentiles can belong to the Jewish body of Messiah falls to the great theologian, the Apostle Paul. And this is, this is his grand theological project. Hmm. It's what Paul is really dealing with when he uses that very tricky word, justification. What he's trying to do is answer the question, how do we justify Gentiles as Gentiles belonging to this salvific community called the church, called the kingdom of Christ, called whatever you want? Um, Paul is so successful in solving the problem that it created a new problem, and that is we no longer really understand the problem that Paul was solving, and we imagine it to be other things. And, I mean, who sits around and worries today? I don't know. Can Gentiles actually belong right. uh, to the to Jesus? I mean, can well, nobody even thinks about that because Paul solved the problem so much. So what is salvation? Salvation is the kingdom of God. It's much bigger. See, and I, I, I alluded to this just when you were setting up the question— one of the great problems in modern Western Protestant, particularly evangelical forms of Christianity is that salvation has been privatized and made postmortem. In other words, mm-hmm. salvation becomes an individual, personal, private transaction between me and Jesus that primarily pertains to where I'm going to go when I die, that I'm going to go to heaven and not hell. And it's really hard to get most modern evangelicals beyond the realm of what I call heaven and hell minimalism, where they'll hear what I'm saying as as I've been speaking the last few minutes and say, yeah, 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 yeah. But really, come on now, really, isn't it all about heaven and hell? Hmm. To which I say, no, it's really not. As, as crazy as this may sound to people, heaven and hell really are, if, if the scriptures are going to be any guide to us are a peripheral matter. Why do I say that? I say, look, if you look at the sermons that we find in the book of Acts, okay, so this very early record of the apostolic proclamation of the gospel. If you look at the sermons, there's about seven or eight, depending on what you count as a sermon. They make no appeal to afterlife issues. They proclaim the gospel without ever appealing to, to what happens when you die. Now, I'm sure they had opinions about it. They had ideas about it. I'm not sure. I'm not certain. I am absolutely not certain that all the apostles would necessarily agree on what happens at death. I don't think this was central. I mean, I know it wasn't central to the proclamation of the gospel. Their gospel was the announcement that Jesus is Lord and that those who now recognize that Jesus is Lord can participate in the realm over—well, I, I started to say we can participate in the realm over which he's Lord. I retract that statement. No, Jesus is Lord. I mean, he's Lord over all things. I, I asked Eugene Peterson one time, I said, I said Eugene Peterson, uh, what is 
the kingdom of God. And he thought for a moment and he said, well, it's the world, isn't it? (laughs) Which I thought was a brilliant reply. And so there is no domain over which Jesus is not Lord, but there are those that are willing to recognize it as such. Uh, The great Catholic theologian of the uh, new theology movement, Yves Congor, he said, the church is the world as believing in Christ. All right, so we come to believe in Christ, and now we're a part of this alternative society through which the world will be saved. I mean, one of the phrases that we find frequently in the New Testament is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I'm afraid that most evangelicals reduce that to Jesus is the Savior of parts of people for another world. Hmm. He's the Savior of the spirits or souls, whatever you want to say, of people for another world, for heaven. And yet that's not the language of Scripture, and it's not the focus of Scripture. Once you make salvation about really what happens when we die, I think everything very quickly unravels, and you're going to be hopelessly confused. And so as hard as it may be, I feel like I need to tell evangelicals that, and maybe Western Christians in general, that you really need to push afterlife issues more to the periphery. So can and, I, can I you, Brian? So let's just go on and on if you yeah, don't. Yeah, yeah, I love, yeah. it. I love it. I know. Yeah. I love it too. I'm like, just please. But I, I want to interject. Just, just raise your hand and I'll call Yeah, yeah, you. yeah. Thank you. A little <laughs> green light will pop on. Um, growing up, this idea of a, that you had a sin problem that was separating you from God, um, we would, you know, in studying the Bible with people, we draw this and it was fun. a legal problem. And it was a legal problem, which I, I want you to expound on that metaphor. Sin so problem we, was a legal problem, yeah. What did you say, uh, Stephen? The sin problem was a legal problem. Yes. You, so you needed a lawyer. Yes, exactly. And, and what we would draw is, I'll never forget, we do like kind of two, there'd be this chasm, right? We do something in Isaiah, yeah, your yeah. sins have separated from God. You got the chasm, you put the cross in the middle, Jesus is the bridge. So, so, But the sin problem and getting that sin dealt with, air quotes here, was mm-hmm. the was like that that is what predicated whether or not you know that was the the salvation boundary line is that this something would happen so that you would cross over and that's when you could be when you were forgiven when this transaction happened that's when you could actually that was the moment of salvation and there was a heavy focus not only on the sin management but also in my tradition on the mechanics um how exactly does this happen? What yeah. do you need to believe for it to happen? Do you know your Bible or not? Because it's crystal clear there, and all these people that are doing X, Y, and Z don't get it. So I, I could go off, but my question to you is is this. So that salvation is the result of giving uh, the proper answer to a theological quiz. Well, not only the answer, though, then you— yeah, well, right. the, not only the answer, but you actually then, and to their to the credit of kind of work, you then had to do it. I mean, you had to, it wasn't just a knowledge. It was like, we're putting this into practice, not only like go on, you know, repent, change your life, you know, right. go, be baptized, live a life as a disciple, which I think is great and right. My, yeah. qu- my question is, how but, do but you... But see, here's the thing. Once we separate evangelism and discipleship into very hard separate categories... What we do is we offer salvation cheap, and then we spend a lifetime trying to interest people in the optional upgrade to discipleship. And most of the time we fail. One of the big changes that has occurred at Word of Life Church, the church where I'm pastor, over the last 14 years is that we virtually make no distinction today 
between evangelism and discipleship. They're basically the same thing. So what, what does that mean practically? Like if someone comes in and says, I'm not even a Christian, I want to become a Christian, I, I'm interested in understanding this life of following Christ— is there, like, do you guide people to a, some sort of, you're going to have this moment where the light, you know, you go from dark to light, where there is this transactional thing, and then you live this life, but discipleship, you know, leaving your nets and discipleship is part of that? Want, if you say, I want to be a part of this community of Christ followers, we baptize you. See, another problem, and this is a problem historically, and I understand how it came about. I'm very sympathetic to it. But what happened was uh, the the salvation altar call or some form of decision, which is very perfect, replaced baptism. Now, this came about because we ended up within Christendom with a baptized continent. And so then you have the revivalist movements of trying to get people to actually live out their faith. So what do you do when an entire continent is baptized, but you're still trying to make actual disciples of Jesus out of these people, then you have to come up with some other way of indicating, yes, I want to follow Jesus. And thus you have the creation of the altar call and revivalism and all of that. It was it was probably a necessary thing to do, but it also becomes problematic. Right. And going back to this, this sin question, how do you think about this Jesus dealing with or God dealing with this sin issue in the kingdom context? I don't use the legal metaphor very much. Now, I mean, I understand you can find some scriptural warrant for that, but I think it's been so overdone that I, I think of Jesus far less as a lawyer than I think of him as a doctor. And I think what we have, I think think of sin as not so much a legal problem with God. Because there's the idea that, you know, somehow God couldn't forgive until uh, a transaction, a quid pro quo was enacted on Good Friday at the cross. Uh, I don't believe that. Uh, God has always dealt with sin by forgiving sin. Um at the cross, God does not gain the capacity to forgive. He doesn't gain the capital to forgive. In other words, at the cross, um, I think of it like this. I think this is the moment when the sin of the world coalesces into a singularity that in mass it might be forgiven by God in Christ. But I prefer to think of, of Jesus, if we're going to use metaphors, more as a as a doctor than a lawyer, a healer, rather than someone who can negotiate a, a, a plea agreement with the judge. <laughs> I think that. Right. So, and, 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 and it, it's ongoing. I mean, there's the moment of forgiveness, but then I need my soul to be healed and become healthy and become the kind of soul where that, that is not plagued by the disease of sin. And this is why the spiritual practices then and disciplines become a part of ongoing salvation. Sometimes I'll, I'm, I'm being somewhat humorous when I say this, but it's, it's I don't like the idea of being saved. It's the duh part where, where it's so final. I'm, I'm saved. Right. This happened. I, right. I like the idea of I'm in the process of being saved. Yes. Uh, um, salvation is, is at work in my life. Now, I do believe I, if I say if I say salvation is best understood as a kind of belonging, uh, I belong. And by the way, here's something also that's a unique problem that's been created by revivalism. Um, 
it then it, it then be, the onus of knowing whether or not you are saved falls upon the lone individual. And so you somehow have to convince yourself that I really have had saving faith. I really have how whatever language you use. I've asked Jesus into my heart. I've been born again. I've prayed the sinner's prayer. But, of course, the individual is constantly subjected to inner turmoil about yes. that. Uh, when you understand that salvation is best understood as a kind of belonging, you don't have to tell yourself that you are saved. Rather, the community tells you. Yeah. So the church That's says to you, you're one of us. You belong to us. You belong to Christ. Think about uh, think about um, citizenship. I have a U.S. passport. It doesn't really matter if I feel do – I, do I feel very American today? Do I feel like an American? Do, do I feel enough Americanism in me? I probably don't, <laughs> but, but I mean, it, it was, <laughs> depends I who you're asking. Twitter, the answer is no. Yeah. Yeah. My citizenship is not determined by me as the lone individual citizen. It's rather the vast apparatus of the nation that says, yeah, that's good. Brian, you're a citizen. And so, uh, as a pastor, you know, for now 36 going on 37 years, I have met a lot of people who are almost suffering from a a diagnosable neurosis over whether or not they're saved. Yes, and and, and the and the doubt and the, in their mind the uncertainty. And um, I have ministered at times to to people by saying, "Look, that's not up to you to convince yourself. Let me tell you, you belong to Christ." As a pastor, let me just tell you, you have prayed, you've believed, you've repented, you've been baptized. You belong to Christ. So whether you feel like okay. it or not, whether you like it or not, you belong to Christ. Right. And uh, that, that has really helped a lot of people. Yeah, no, I think that's helpful. I, another question, and I'm going to let Stephen run with something. So also growing up, because that just happens to impact everything I think and feel, um, we framed salvation in the gospels in the gospel accounts as very different than what we see kind of post-resurrection and ascension outside of just the Jew Jew Gentile piece so that Jesus had this authority. He could forgive sins on the spot. The resurrection, the death of Jesus hadn't happened yet. Acts two hadn't happened yet. So Peter didn't even know the mechanism in place. And frankly, would everything we see in the gospels in terms of him healing people and forgiveness and the way he worked there, that was just for that time, not only in terms of healings, but in terms of the way God did the salvation thing. That's for one season of, of history. And now post-ascension and post-really the writings of Paul, this is how it works. And frankly, that, that's the only well, way it works. Do yes, you draw, this, and that's this, a false dichotomy, but do you draw any sort of distinction? Yeah. This, is, this is the legacy, one of the negative legacies of Reformed theology that refuses to take Jesus seriously as a theologian. Or, or if you want to say it a different way, I don't mind. You say it either way. Or refuses to take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John seriously as theologians. They regard Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as merely uh, archivalists, you know, writing down a few things and and keeping alive a, a record of what Jesus did. And it's their particular reading of Paul 
which is definitely through the lens of Luther and Calvin, that, that is theology. No. I mean, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are self-conscious theologians. And if, if you say, I can't draw theological implications from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, doesn't, shouldn't some alarm bells be going off there? Right. Um, so, so you, but you do see you run into problems that, that, that the, the very systematic, formulaic way of understanding what it means to be saved according to Reformed theology is not found in the Gospels. And so, you know, in the Gospels you have, and it's the lectionary reading for this week, for those that pay attention to such things. Uh, this coming Sunday in churches that follow the lectionary, the Gospel reading will have the story of, uh, of a man saying, what good thing must I do to be saved? And Jesus starts talking about the law. Um, so, I mean, people don't like that. Uh, one very well-known, um, I'm not going to name names, I don't feel like being sure. that ugly tonight. tonight. Um, but a very well-known Reformed preacher was asked, did Jesus preach the gospel? And he struggled to answer, and finally said, well, yeah. And he gives the story of the parable that Jesus gives of the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector going up to the temple, and the, uh, the, uh, the tax collector you know, humbles himself, says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, this one went home justified. And because he used the word justified, okay, that made him feel like, okay, he'd pre- No, the, everything Jesus does is the gospel. First of all, the gospel is not a formula. It's not a formula. The, the gospel is the story of Jesus. That's the gospel. Now, you can, you can draw some conclusions from it, of course, but it's not a Roman road. It's not four spiritual laws. It's not, you know, the three steps of how to be saved. The gospel is the story of Jesus. Or you could say it this way, the gospels are the gospel in its most abbreviated form. If you want to simply abbreviate as much as possible the gospel, it's death, burial, and resurrection. Right. The fuller story begins in Bethlehem and ends in the Garden of Joseph of Arimathea. The director's cut edition starts in Genesis and has the entire story of Israel. Um, so the, the gospel is the story of Jesus. Um, and as our story begins to—as we respond to the story of Jesus in some measure of faith, that's when our story— the story of our lives, begins to intersect with the story of Jesus. And that's when salvation happens and begins to happen and continues to happen. His story begins to enfold into our life. And we find ourselves in the process of being healed and forgiving, forgiven and, and, and recovering. And salvation is ongoing. So rather than try to figure out the mechanics of it and come up with a formula of it, I would rather... Let's simply say, let us, let us believe in Jesus. Let us, let us be baptized that we might belong to this distinct community of intentional Christ followers and then understand that somehow, in a mysterious way, salvation is happening yeah. in our lives. Yeah. I, uh, 
I have a question. I, I, I want to make a pivot here in just a moment, but before I do, I want to go back just just for a second. Um, we we mentioned already a few of the metaphors that are used in talking about God uh, and, and sin. You have you have the juridical or the legal metaphor, the judge, uh, and sin is sort of the legal debt or the you know the 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 record of right. of you know infringements upon the law. Uh, we have, I guess, Jesus as the healer and sin as the sickness. I mean, I know that there's some where uh, uh, still kind of in, in using the debt framework, but but there's a ransom that has to get paid um, in order to pay off that debt. So I, I'm curious to hear how you explain to people, uh, you know, briefly, how, how, how do you explain what the problem is. If Jesus, if like you said, Jesus is the healer, what is the sickness? How do you unpack that for people? Sin and death. Uh, sin, some sort of corruption of the soul that prevents us from rightly relating to both God and neighbor. So somehow there, there's, a, there's an illness, a deformity, a malady that takes possession of our soul, and we, re- we, we relate wrongly to God, mm-hmm. and then it, and consequently, then we, re- we relate wrongly to neighbor. Yes, it's something to be forgiven, but it's also something to be healed and restored. And so, and, and then there's the problem of death, and I think we, we often forget this, that, that um, this seems to be the big problem. The big problem is, um, let, let me let me see if I can unpack this. You have, at least the way I see it, you have four kinds of being. Take, for example, four things: a rock, a plant, cat, a child. Okay, a rock. I mean, imagine a rock. Maybe you get a hold in your hand. Here's a rock. Uh, it, it has distinct. It has being. It exists. It's not everything, but it is something. It has dimension and weight and definition. All that you could study. Okay, rock. Then we move to a plant. A plant has being, but it also has life. There's photosynthesis happening and, and growth and all of that sort of thing. Uh, then we. Then we. This is quite a leap. Then you move to a cat. A cat has being, it has life, and it has awareness. Cat is aware of its surroundings. It's aware. And um, that's a big step. It's sentient. It's aware. But then you step to the human. And I'm not saying this is a hard line because, you know, the great apes may be approaching this. But still there is seems to be some line that is crossed where a, a human has being – life, awareness, and aware of their awareness. They are self-aware. They are. But I think the capacity of awareness of our awareness, self-reflection, is also the same capacity that allows us to be God-aware, but it comes with the price of also being Mm death-aware. I I have a cat, Fyodor Dostoevsky, that's the name of my cat. And my cat is aware and it likes to tell me when it wants to be fed and all these other things. Um, but I don't think it's I don't think it's self-reflective. I don't think my cat is aware of God in any meaningful sense. 
the benefit is my cat's not aware of the fact that it's going to die someday. So it doesn't <laughs> walk around with that, that anxiety and that dread. You and I right. do. And so once we cross that line into this, this new depth of capacity to be aware of reality, it comes with the gift of self-awareness and God-awareness or the capacity for those things. But it also comes with the price of being death aware, which I think might factor in a little bit to some of what's going on in Genesis 3, although I don't want to try to unpack all that right now. And so this is a great problem. Uh, death seems to threaten um, life having ultimate meaning. I mean, we can be very much tempted then toward a kind of nihilistic meaninglessness. I mean, if all we have is this, you know, three score and ten and that's it. I mean, there is a little bit of a temptation that it's all absurd and meaningless and ultimately uh, not worth the effort. So what we have in Christ as the gospel is told, as the story unfolds, is the great thing. I, I'm going to maybe go out on a limb here. Some people may not like what I say next. Some people may love it. I think the forgiveness of sins is, secondary, is, is, is a secondary problem. The great problem is that Jesus somehow overcomes death. Now, the resurrection of Jesus, however we understand it, I think it's very difficult for us to understand because the resurrection of Jesus is not a really impressive resuscitation of Jesus. It's not so much that Jesus comes back from the dead. I don't know that I like. I don't know that I like that for that he goes into death and then comes back from the dead. Hmm. From the, this is that's Lazarus, okay, and others. Uh, if, if Jesus is doing what Lazarus did, then Lazarus is more impressive because he was four days dead. Rather with Jesus. It's somehow he goes all the way through death and opens a door to something beyond and something beyond the reach of death. Mm. Uh, I like to use the language of, well, the Apostle Paul says at the end of Ephesians 1 that Christ now fills all things everywhere with himself. And that death has now been uh, filled with Christ. So now to now for a human to die is to encounter Christ. To enter into death is in fact to encounter Christ. For we won't, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, okay, let, let, let me. And here's how I think that death is overcome by Christ. And I must appeal to a great theological work known as Men in Black. It's a <laughs> It's a classic. That's my childhood it's, defined. It's a classic uh, with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones. And you will remember in the climactic moment, uh, New York is terrorized by this bug, this galactic cockroach, as, <laughs> as Tommy Lee Jones calls him, or Agent. I'm not getting mixed up. J Agent K. K. Yeah, yeah. K. So, 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 so. Uh, there's that moment when they're confronting them, and and uh, remember when when Tommy Lee Jones taunts the bug and says, "Eat me, eat me," and finally he does. The, the the giant cockroach swallows up Agent K. Yes. Uh, 
but but the character played by Will Smith knows what's going to happen. And you hear him retrieve his gun down from inside the bowels of this giant galactic cockroach. You hear him fire that thing up and then the cockroach, the bug <laughs> is destroyed from the inside out. When death swallows Jesus, it's ultimately the end of the dominion of death. This is a very, very orthodox, both small O, but here I'm actually thinking, you know, capital O. This is a very Eastern Orthodox way of understanding the ultimate accomplishment of salvation, that Christ destroys death by death. By entering the death, Christ destroys death. Uh, we don't talk about that much in the West. Well, yeah, yeah, and then, and then you get to live forever. Uh, I think it's the central announcement of the gospel that that death is destroyed by Christ. Wow, that's a. Uh, now you need to watch Men in Black again. Oh yeah, <laughs> just yeah. for the theology of it. Yes, <laughs> it's and and for the soundtrack, of mm-hmm. course, of course. <laughs> so uh, so the, this this is a good transition here. I mean, you, you mentioned going going through it and. To provide, I guess, a little bit of context here, I've had a number of conversations recently with with friends. Uh, in fact, recently, my wife and I were, were just trying to, we were kind of counting up the number of close friends that we had that were in various stages, I'll use your language, on, on the journey from water to wine. Um, yeah. But they're in the very anxious, kind of tenuous yeah. early stage. Uh, where the walls start to cave in, uh, you know, the structures that kind of held your world up begin to shake, and then all of a sudden, everything is sort of just feels threatened. And and one of the one of the things I think that precipitates this type of a transition uh, is the the beginning the, the recognition of the the implications of this of the stories we tell about God, particularly about salvation, about atonement, about what, you know what God does with sin, um, and and it, it 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 leads people to the all kinds of questions of well, what kind of God you know would do this to His Son, or, or also you know how how on earth could um, how could that possibly be be just to, for someone to live a life of you know X many years and then just suffer for all eternity or whatever, and w- without having to go too in depth into all the different varieties of, of, of theories, I, I you. I know you hold sort of a different view of, of eschatology. So I'm wondering if one, you can kind of unpack the term and then two, sort of speak to that situation. Those people in that, in that space, in the early stages of transitioning. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, well, you've, you've, you've kind of mixed two topics together, eschatology and then final judgment, but yeah. you can kind of hold them together. Well, eschatology is the ology of the eschaton. It's the study of the end. It's how does this how does this end? Where does this end? And the real problem among uh, modern evangelicals is a horrible, horrible reading of the Book of Revelation, where they see the Book of Revelation as a two thousand year old predictive, futuristic interpretation of the events of now. We would have to say the twenty first century, even though a lot of this started. 20th century, uh, events of the 21st century that are inevitable. And the way they read the book of Revelation, they see all of these uh, horrible events must take place. I think none of that is accurate. What to say about the book of Revelation? Several things. First of all, the book of Revelation is 
what it is, it is the prophetic critique of the Roman Empire uh, juxtapositioned with the ultimate triumph of the kingdom of Christ told in the in the genre of Hebrew apocalyptic literature. Everything in the book of Revelation is symbol. Okay, you, you cannot go through the book of Revelation and just willy-nilly say, okay, let's see here now. Jesus is a lamb with seven eyes and seven horns and a slit throat. Yeah, I think that's a symbol. Uh, Jesus coming back on a flying white horse, uh, killing 200 million people with a sword that he holds in his mouth. Oh, I don't know, I think that's literal. No, you, you can't do that. It's all symbol. Okay, it's all symbol. Not futuristic, but depicting the ultimate triumph of Christ. Just to touch on that one image, uh, Jesus goes into battle in Revelation 19, already drenched in blood, his own blood. And he goes forth not with a sword in his hand, the way conventional conquerors do, but he goes forth with a sword in his mouth, meaning that he wages a war by his word. I count myself among those that have been slain by the sword that comes from the mouth of the Son of God mm. and have been raised to newness of life to participate with him in the construction of what is called the New Jerusalem. Outside the gates of the New Jerusalem, there's a lake of fire. Those that want to continue with the old way of the world, they find themselves always following the beast, always following the ways of empire, always ending up in a place that is a desolate wasteland way of living. Uh, but what do the spirit and the bride in the city say? Are you thirsty? Come in. And what were we told? The gates are never shut. The gates are always open. So there's this continual invitation. There's another way to live. It's the kingdom that's established by Christ. I don't think the book of Revelation is in any way futuristic other than it posits the ultimate triumph of Christ in some, you know, indefinable future, which, you know, look, are we in the last? Yes. Yes, we're in the last days. We've been in the last days, according to Scripture, since the day of Pentecost. So we've been in the last days for 2000 years. But we also also might be still part of the early church. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, what what if twenty thousand years from now people are saying Brian's you know, okay, a patristic? <laughs> yes, there you go. Hallelujah! <laughs> that has made my life. Uh, twenty thousand years. They're reading the old. We're in the, we're in the last days, and for all we know, we are we are the early church. So uh, th that's that's a really totally totally inadequate comment on Book of Revelation. A uh, little plug, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God has three chapters on the Book of Revelation, so that more substance there. Um, final judgment. Again, it was never central to the apostolic announcement of the gospel. But uh, what do we believe? Um, well, somehow we have made death this very hard line. Um but I've already said, I believe that Christ has conquered death. So somebody says, yeah, but Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed that each man die once, and after this, the judgment. To which I say, yep, and then what? Mm. And then what? Here's what I believe. I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm not a universalist simply because uh, I think universalist is 
putting too fine a point on things. They're claiming to know too much. Can you explain what you mean by, by universalism just for our, our folks? Well, I, what do I mean or what do I think? Well, let me just unpack this a little bit. Let me just take a little Go, for, go for it, man. Uh, universalism, this is, this is a modern term. Uh, the, the Greek term is apokatastasis, uh, which means uh, the final or full restoration of all things. Uh, universalism, the idea that ultimately God will be able to reconcile all things to himself. That's that's one, That's really what universalism should be understood as. It's not a heresy. It's a minority position that has always been held by some in the church, including Gregory of Nyssa, who presided over the Council of Nicaea that essentially defines Christian orthodoxy. So you can't call the guy that presides over the council that defines Christian orthodoxy a heretic or everything falls apart. (laughs) Um, Unfortunately, uh, in the minds of many critics, they think of universalism as something like this. Okay, here's Hitler. He's in the bunker. He puts the gun to his head. He pulls the trigger, and suddenly he finds himself in his five-star luxury mansion in heaven forever and ever. Uh, no serious theologian who tends towards some form of universalism believes that. They believe all is dealt with, all is accounted for, but in the end, God somehow is able to reconcile all things to himself. Uh, I'm hopeful that that is the case. Uh, I think the best book, two good books written on the subject, my good friend Brad Jerzak yes. uh, wrote his book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. And then uh, Hansers von Balthasar wrote the book, Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved. And in the title, that all men be saved is in quotation marks because it comes from one of Peter's epistles, that all men, that, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all men should be saved. And just to summarize, I mean, this is a, a worthy book to read, but to summarize it in about a sentence, Balthazar would say, dare we hope that all men be saved? Yes, we dare hope, we dare not say. No. Uh, but simply, the, if one of our listeners has grown up in a system, and many have, where if someone has not prayed the magic prayer, where they ask Jesus into their heart to be their Lord and Savior— only, the only option is that they are tortured forever. Uh, you do not need to believe that to be a Christian. I don't believe that. Uh, I don't think our best theologians have ever believed that, except maybe at some periods of time. Certainly not in the patristic world that wasn't believed, and it's not believed by what I would consider our best theologians today. Um, what I confess as a Christian is that all that is saved is saved by Christ. And I, I push back on people who say, and I know who Christ can save and can't save. I say, oh, do you? So, so you know that Christ can't save this person because they were born in 10,000 B.C. <laughs> or Christ can't save right. this person because they lived their entire life in Kabul, Afghanistan. You, you, and you know that Christ can't save them. I do want to say, how dare you? Um, so I, I propose a thought experiment to people. I say, if uh, if what you understand as hell is significantly less populated than what you anticipated, will you be happy or sad about that fact? Hmm. Uh, it seems that some people are really counting on heaven being uh, minimally populated and hell being very populated 
And then I have to think, okay, what is so wrong with your soul that, that you even seem to be gleeful about that? Yeah. Um, I hold to the hope that in the end, uh, God in Christ can uh, re- reconcile all things to himself. But I'm not just hedging my bets so as not to be you know, labeled a universalist, although I don't like labels. Um, but here's what I do think, uh, because I also hold to radical freedom. I think this is part of being created in the image of God. I think that in any given moment, a human being is capable of rejecting the mercy of God, and that capability is theoretically eternal. Does so I think, understand how? However we understand – well, first, first of all. Most of of what we call hell in Scripture is talking about impending consequences right here and now, okay? Most of what you say, people will say, well, Jesus talked about hell more than anyone. Yeah, 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 sort of. (laughs) But but he didn't talk about post-mortem hell near as much as you think he talked about it. He's talking about the inevitable consequences that are going to fall befall Jerusalem within a generation, as it turned out in AD 70, because they reject the message of the gospel of peace that he was proclaiming. Hmm. And so— when, so, so, so it's like when people say to me, do you believe in a literal hell? I go, yeah, I believe in a literal hell. I don't think you do. The literal hell is what happened to Jerusalem in AD 70, where the city was literally pulled down into the garbage dump, where the fires were not quenched, and the maggots, you know, in the corpses of the people that had died there, uh, the, the worms were not dying, and the fires were not being quenched. That, in 70 AD, Jerusalem went to a literal hell. What people mean by a literal hell is actually some sort of spiritual afterlife hell, right. which I don't think Jesus talked about near as much. Mm-hmm. He, he does talk about it. He works with an existing uh, Jewish uh, folk tale that he adapts for his own purposes in challenging the Pharisees in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. But look, if you're going to use that as your you know, go-to text on people going to hell, what is the criterion for who goes to heaven and who goes to hell in that passage? First of all, it doesn't talk about heaven and hell because they're all in Sheol, but they're, someone's with, with Abraham and some are not with Abraham. But the criterion was how you treated people. And the same thing with the parable of sheep and goats in Matthew 25. So um, my proclamation of the gospel is not contingent upon afterlife issues. That lurks there. That's there. But I'm calling people now to be a part of the alternative society that God in Christ is building by believing in Jesus, being baptized, and joining yourself with this community of Christ followers. Uh, If you do that, the afterlife will be fine. Uh, we almost appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Um, and, and, I, and here's something I deeply believe. I believe that no one ever sincerely calls upon the mercy of God and is refused. So the idea that, that this scenario would play out, oh, God, I've been wrong. I repent. I'm sorrowful. Have mercy on me. And the response would be, ha. Too late now. You should have thought about that earlier. I cannot conceive of the God that Jesus called Abba doing that. But Brian, can I interrupt? That, that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that there isn't the possibility 
that a human being could so uh, destroy their soul. Yeah, yeah. That they then, I mean, it, it is theoretically possible that a person could so destroy their soul that they cannot call upon the mercy of God. But even then, it's it's as C.S. Lewis says, if the if, if the doors to hell are locked, they're locked from the inside. Right, right. I want to push back because someone for a second, sure. I'm thinking someone has to be thinking about that parable in Luke, right, where Jesus said, you know, the is that rich man and Lazarus that says, right. hey, you know, uh, no, now that I'm, you know, in, I guess he's suffering in some way, and says, you know, go tell my family, please, that you know that. Uh, however you want to interpret that, go tell my family essentially the reality that I should be caring for the poor and doing X, Y, and Z. And he says, hey, if they don't listen to Moses well, and the of prophets. Course, of course, the people that are going to push back that will not say that. What they'll say is, uh, go tell my brothers that they need to pray the sinner's prayer. Right, how to get but, saved. But, that, right. but that's not in the, that's not how that's <laughs> right. But how, You are then misusing that parable. But how does that, but how does that kind of, that parable that Jesus gives kind of play into this I idea that... Know. Point of the parable is to give us a voyeur's view of the afterlife. Yeah. I think the point yeah. of the, the actual context. Let me to go, man. Because I'm with have, you. I'm I just have pitching a Bible this. right here in front of me, folks. I got a Bible right here, and I know it's Luke 16. And um, so, um, so Jesus is is. Uh, Right before the parable, we have this. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And Jesus begins to challenge them and then gives them the story. Hmm. Uh, Jesus is challenging people who love money more than people and saying, you are going to do untold damage to your soul and suffer the consequences if you do. Um. But then he's also working with them and saying, look, if they won't listen, if, if, if people don't listen to the law and the prophets, they're not going to listen to e- even if someone is raised from the dead, which could be a cryptic reference to his his um, his resurrection. But also Jesus has just given I mean, the parable that comes like, you know. Two parables before that is the parable of the prodigal son, who also is is the yes. dead that has come back. This is the, you know you, your brother who was dead is now alive, and so and, and Jesus specifically were told told that parable to the Pharisees, and so Jesus is saying, look, you're seeing sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes come back to life. By yeah. receiving this gospel message, and if you're not going to repent over that, you're not going to repent even if somebody comes back from the, wow. the, the grave. Gosh, dude! Yes, yeah. that's awesome, Brian. This this is to me. I mean, this is this really resonates. I mean, obviously, with both Andrew and I. I mean, we're this is. I find this vision uh, of 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 the narrative way more compelling. Um, but one of the pushback, one of the things that I often hear when I am telling people about this. Uh, is is people will push back and say, okay, but what about what about the sense of urgency? I mean, if people, if mm. ultimately everybody can just be saved, then I, why should I evangelize? Yeah. I'm sick. <laughs> Brian's losing it. You guys should see the video. What? 
once you have made the mistake of moving gospel into the realm of heaven and hell minimalism, the wheels fall off. The gospel is not the announcement of how you can go to heaven and hell when you die. The gospel is the story of Jesus that culminates with an alternative society. So if I go to India, which I've gone 14 times, and talk about Jesus, it's not primarily so that people can go to heaven and not hell when they die. It's so that the kingdom of Christ can then begin to carve out new territory in a new place. And that the world can begin to be being saved by Jesus Christ. It's the announcement of the kingdom that is the proclamation of the gospel, not an idea about how to go to heaven and not hell when you die. Mm. And once you make that shift, then you don't have to carry the burden. I mean, look. I've had this happen more than once, but I'll just tell – remarkably, I've had this happen more than once, but I'll just tell one version of it. So there's this uh, young woman. She grew up in our church, goes off to college. She's just, you know, fine Christian young woman. Uh, and then in college, went on some sort of college trip to Germany that involved then a trip into Poland and a visit to Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And when she was in Auschwitz, I mean, here she, she was probably at this point, she's like, you know, 21 or something like this, 20, 21. And she's grown up in church. She's kind of and Auschwitz just being there threw her immediately into a deep crisis of faith. And she thinks, do I have to believe that all of these people here? that were brutalized, ripped from their homes, put 70 to a boxcar, brought to this hell, Mm. forced to live here until they were put into a gas chamber, and then their bodies are put into ovens and turned to smoke, that with their death, they then went to an eternal Auschwitz where God himself burns them forever but doesn't let them die. They will be supernaturally sustained so that they can feel pain, eternal conscious torment. Mm. And she came back to me and said, if if I have to believe that to be a Christian, I can't be a Christian anymore. And I was able to tell her that, uh, no, you don't have to believe that to be a Christian. In fact, you'll be a lot better Christian if you don't believe that. And I worked with her theologically and showed her scripture and helped her understand that 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 is a paradigm that had been forced upon her that is not true to the message of Christ or historic Christianity. Uh, Well, it saved saved her Christian faith. A few years later, she got married. She asked me to do her her wedding. And you think, you know, a wedding day, that's a big day. And not long before the ceremony, she came up to me and took me aside for a moment privately and said, I want to talk to you. And she said, I want to thank you for what you said to me a couple of years ago that saved my Christian faith. It was so big to her that on her wedding day, she was thinking about that and wanted to thank me for that. So um, I'm saying that in context of people say, well, well, then what's the impulse to preach the gospel if, if uh, people can be rescued from a post-mortem hell outside of this particular system that I mistakenly call Christianity. Uh, Well, no, the the impulse of the gospel is to announce that Jesus is Lord and to bring the reality of the kingdom of God here and now. Uh, Afterlife issues are peripheral, and we don't know much about them. 
Okay, I mean, let's let's just be honest about that. I have this thought experiment. I think this, I, I you know, I can't prove it one way or the other. So what's the point here? But I, I imagine you take the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, and the Apostle John. Okay, these are these are heavyweights. These are you know big, important pillars, and we interview them separately. I mean, we we go back in a time machine. We get them while they're all still alive. You know, and so it's like you know, fifty A.D. And we say, hey, Paul, uh, what do you believe about – what happens when people die? What do you believe about afterlife? And we, we do this with Paul. We do this with Peter. We do this with, with John. I suspect that they don't line up perfectly. I think they all three have kind of ideas because it was not the centrality of the message they were proclaiming. And somewhere along the way, part of this – part of what happened is this. With – the conversion, so-called conversion of Constantine. You now have a so-called Christian emperor, although Constantine himself understood that he really wasn't a Christian because he delayed his baptism until his deathbed because he knew you really couldn't be a Christian and be a Roman emperor at the same time. Right. Uh, but what happens then is all of a sudden the church now is going to collude with the empire the church has been announcing that Jesus is Lord, and by implication, Caesar is not. And this is what has got them in trouble. But all of a sudden, now they have a Christian Caesar. Oh, well. So we're going to go along with this. And uh, the problem is now Jesus, what does it mean that Jesus is Lord? Now we've got Caesar Lord again. Now Caesar's Lord. So what is Jesus? Well, Jesus gets demoted. Because we can't get rid of Jesus, you know, and call ourselves Christians. So Jesus gets demoted to the secretary of afterlife affairs. And it becomes now the task of Jesus to get parts of people into uh, a platonic heaven upon death. This becomes the role of Jesus. Rather than Jesus as Lord, not Lord elect, not Lord someday, Lord here and now. Uh, because really we're going to let Caesar be Lord here now, but we have to have something for Jesus to do. Jesus becomes the one that saves parts of people for another world. Mm. So there's a vast difference. When, when I say Jesus is the Savior of the world, most Christians, I'm not, I assume all Christians will go, yeah, amen. Jesus is the Savior of the world. But too many modern Western evangelicals really mean, well, Jesus is the Savior of parts of people for another world. That is... That is really kind of the legacy of Platonism, where the idea is that well, we, we first of all the term the fall comes from Platonism. It's not in Scripture. Uh, Plato talks about how in the world of the perfect forms, uh, pre-existing spirits then fell down. This is the fall. Fell down into bodies uh, where we are imprisoned in contemptible flesh. And then our great desire ultimately is to be liberated and go back to the heaven of the platonic forms, the perfect forms, and be liberated from this world. Uh, that's Platonism. That's not Christianity. But it's surely easily mistaken for Christianity these days. All right. So this is we've, we've covered a lot of stuff here. This we? is awesome. Man, <laughs> that's all awesome. I we got to wrap for the sake of everyone's time here and including our listeners. But, man, Steve, is there anything else you want to add before we wrapped? No, man, this is this is really it's been it's been a lot of fun, Brian. Uh, I just want to I just want to kind of put a bow on it. Yeah, go for please it. do. You can be a Christian 
and not believe that God operates an eternal torture chamber and that God has predestined the death of hundreds of millions of people in some end-time Middle Eastern mega war. I don't believe those things, and I'm a Christian. So it is possible to be a Christian and not believe all these ugly things that have infected Christianity. That's great. That's what I'm going to say. That's great. Well, I think that's a great good place to end. Yeah. Thank you so much for providing. Thank you so much for sitting to your point at the beginning, sitting and thinking and chewing <laughs> and, and, and pursuing these things for our benefit, for the benefit of the, the capital C church more broadly. And, uh, we're grateful for our listeners. As always, we'll point you to all Brian's books and blog and sermons and uh, and Instagram and everything else. You can follow him on his next Camino. Uh, Instagram's probably where I'm the nicest. <laughs> pictures, you know. Yeah, just now and then, just beautiful things. Uh, Brian, thanks I'm so much. That I am on Twitter when I'm on Instagram. Yeah. No, that's – I like the provocateur. I can appreciate it. But, hey, thank you. And uh, listeners, as always, thank you for tuning in, and uh, we'll see you on the next one.